0: Thanks for checking out this podcast. Remember, it's presented by Minnesota's very own Ticket King. If you're looking for tickets for an upcoming game or event at TCF Bank Stadium, Target Center, or XL Center, visit TicketKingOnline.com or the link from the 1500ESPN.com sports calendar page. Ticket King has all your tickets for Minnesota baseball, plus all the concerts, all the theaters, and at all venues. And Ticket King can take care of you for out-of-town concerts, sporting events, and more. Call 612-341-4141 or visit TicketKingOnline.com. He doesn't plan on writing a book to chronicle all his incredible experiences over the past 50 years covering Minnesota sports, but we've convinced him to do something even better, to share his greatest stories in auditory form right here. We wanted to call this a Prairie Home Curmudgeon but legal next it so we proudly present the best stories from the mind of Patrick Roycey, titled Roycey Rambles here's Judd Zulgad
1: all right the latest edition here of Roycey Rambles Patrick uh, you're back from Florida and it's very fitting that it is time for baseball season uh, your baseball stories go back obviously years and years especially with the twins back to a time before you even covered the team and actually were a young fan going to Met stadium
0: yeah, I was at the first ever game they played in 1961. Uh, you look at the crowd and say, how come there's only 24,000 people there? That's because they were still building the stadium. Uh, the uh, the right field, which became the big grandstand, big mm-hmm. part of the grandstand, was still being built, the upper decks of those. And uh, it was a minor league stadium holding ten, eleven, twelve thousand 11, 12,000 people before they got their major league team. And the funny thing is they were always going to finish the left field line they never did they kept oh, were they those really lines. yeah they were always that was the, when you go back and look at stuff the this is i don't know if we used phase 1 and phase 2 like we did then but this was the right field line was phase 1 and then we we're going to do phase 2 and mm-hmm. those rickety often condemned bleachers in left uh, down the left field line stayed there till the bitter end never never did get fixed did you, in your youth, when you were at a game, did you ever have the privilege of walking behind those and seeing that the way they were basically chewing gum together? And it, It's amazing that when you had a Viking crowd there of people yep. stomping their feet, that those things didn't collapse and kill thousands of people. But uh, but they never did fix it, but that's why. 61, uh, the Twins had been in Yankee Stadium. Pete Ramos uh, shut out Whitey Ford, first ever game, 6-0. We were going to win the World Series, and then we came home (laughs) and lost to Joe McClain and the the expansion Washington Senators. The new Washington team came here, and boy, we walked out of there with our daubers down that day that we lost to the team that had replaced us at Washington, the expansion team. But it wasn't, as I recall, 61 wasn't bad weather-wise, but 62 was the famous year where there was snow. Basically, on the warning track and outfield and all down the lines and stuff. They had a great big snowstorm in 62, and that uh, was cold and miserable, and <laughs> there was snow all over. That was, uh, that was when you were reminded that baseball in Minnesota can be a little iffy in April. So. Well, and they didn't have heating
1: coils at the time, oh, no. and, I mean, now and if the it, it can rain was, all day, it's fine.
0: Yeah, and the field was crummy, you know. I mean, they, they can get rid of this. If they had some snow, they can just... Turn on the heat in the field and, uh, and melt it if they wanted to. But back then, uh, I don't know what the field was, clay or peat or what it was. But if it rained uh, in the spring, there'd be pot. There'd be a a you know a pool out in left field. It, I, I tell a famous story about Bran Allier was the uh, new slugger in 1970. They got this guy who's kind of a journeyman, but he's he's started his career with seven RBIs in Chicago. Mm-hmm hit two home runs in Comeskey Park, and he came home, but it had been a terribly wet spe- spring in 70, and they put, they had a bad spot in left field, and they put a mat out there, like a huge oversight. You remember the mats they had in the on-deck circles? You yes. Know, you know, they they got big, whatever that surface, that rubbery surface, and they put it out in left field They to cover a I don't know how big it was. It was maybe twenty feet by twenty feet or something. Okay, Alley never left it for like a week. <laughs> he was he just stood on it for didn't make any difference if a right-handed pull hitter or a left-handed pull hitter was out. If you looked out there, Brant was standing on top of the it's rubber. Be band on it because he didn't want to have wet shoes. So uh, it was, uh, it, was uh, <laughs> it was it was you know. Baseball in April out there. Well, you look at the crowds. Here, here's a good one for you, Judd. I looked it up. Uh, I looked up the Pete Ramos game. Uh, the other day I was doing something for the show, and I did like five famous openers during the outdoor era previously. Mm-hmm. 61. Twins at Yankee Stadium. 50 degrees, no precipitation. Season opener. Yankees defending American League champions. 14,000 people. Wow, that's how, yeah, that's how times have changed. yeah, we weren't looking for things to do in the 60s because we were too cheap. <laughs> we didn't want to <laughs> spend money. Now we were putting money in the bank so we could buy a lake cabin, you know yeah, in in Pequot Lakes mm-hmm. or something. uh that's that's the way America looked at money and even in the 60s. And uh, now we just, hey, what are we going to do tonight? Right. We can't just sit home and watch TV. Is there a game? Is there something to go do? Right. So uh, it's you know the the Twins averaged I think 1.4 million for the first decade in the American League. Mm-hmm. For one point, they've edged little right around 1.4. Uh, There's a couple of years they almost got to 1.5. They didn't. Led the American League in tennis at an average of 1.4. Wow. Yeah, led the American League in tennis. Yankees the and the Red decade. Sox were all behind them, oh, huh? The Red Sox were going to leave town. The Red Sox were averaging. The Red Sox were, uh, before 67, the Red Sox were in danger of going the same way as the uh, Boston Braves and leaving town. There was always, there were stories about it. They were drawing 5,000, 6,000 a game. And the, the old New England... Yeah. Passion about the Red Sox. They were a disaster. Well, the Twins, I think it's sixty five. The Twins were seventeen and one against them. I think it was sixty five. Okay. The twins lost the first game of the year and won the last seventeen against them. Uh they were bad. And uh I mean they had yes, and then that sixty seven thing came out of nowhere, and that's where the, you know, it was the impossible dream mm-hmm. they called it, and all these all of all of a sudden all these romantic stories started being written about Boats being out in the fog in Cape Cod in September, and the Red Sox would score a run, and all the horns would go off. And that's when the romanticism started again, and the the curse of the Bambino and the whole thing started.
1: Uh, And '67 was when the twins went to to Fenway.
0: One out of two. The great race. It was four teams. Mm -hmm. Actually, it was more for much of the summer. The Angels were in it too. But at the end, the twins. The Red Sox, the Tigers, and uh, I believe the White Sox were still in it going into the last few days. But when it got down, the Twins had two days off before they went to Boston. They were off uh, Friday, Thursday and Friday for some reason. Really? And the series started yeah. on Saturday, and the Twins had to win one out of two. And uh, they had, uh, I think they had, uh, was it caught on Saturday? And Cott was pitching out of his mind, and he popped. That's when he popped his elbow, mm-hmm. and he said it was. If it had been modern medicine, they would have had Tommy John, but he just rehabbed it, and you know, and kept pitching later on. Sure, but uh, yeah, they uh, they they got beat twice in Boston, and uh, and uh, that you know the Red Sox won the World Series, and that that became. That became the start of it, and you know it's it's gone on for fifty years now. But but you go back and go on baseball Reference and look at what the Red Sox were drawn in nineteen sixty three six hundred thousand a- people. Wow, you know, and Fenway was a dump, and they, you know nobody wanted to go to Fenway. It was a dump, and now it's a shrine.
1: So the first time you went to the Met then. If my understanding is right, left field as we as we knew it after the Vikings uh, put the upper deck in didn't no, exist, right? It was the
0: bleachers. So I mean, the whole thing was bleachers. The
1: whole thing basically was a grandstand mm-hmm. and nothing I, else. I
0: believe in the minor league days there was nothing on left field. Okay. I don't think there was. A, they didn't bother. They had a a, you know they they only needed 12,000. You know I, I I'm not sure that those bleachers in left field existed. They might have had that little porch out there in right field. I. I I went to some Miller's games, but I, I can't – remember we came up and saw Willie Mays in an exhibition game, maybe mm-hmm. in 56, because my – Al Worthington, who was married to my cousin, was pitching, so we'd have – any time Big Al, as we called him, was pitching anywhere within however many miles of my hometown, we'd go watch him. I remember we went to Omaha once to see – the Giants, for some reason, were playing a exhibition series in Omaha – or an exhibition game in Omaha, and we went down there to see him, but. But I met Stadium maybe seven eight times with the Millers, and I, I don't have great recollections of it. You know I, I, what it actually was like uh, before the construction started, Sure. and what what came to be known. And I think the left field bleachers is what sixty. Might have been right before the sixty-five th- seats. I think I have
1: read it was sixty-five, and I think I read the Vikings, I think the Vikings paid, for paid for it, it, for it because you know? they wanted the fifty-yard line seats, basically yes. because those were good seats.
0: <clears throat> well. It, it is amazing that, uh, you know, we watched football games in there and didn't think anything of it. Because it's, you know, that's the way you watch the Packers play when they play at a county stadium. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you know, this is, you know, the two teams standing on the same sideline was always kind of odd. But uh, it was definitely, a, you know, not a football stadium no. by any means. But, yeah, they did pay for that left field bleachers and they weren't going to get it. And it cost... Even back then, it was like a couple of million, I think. Mm-hmm. You, know, you weren't going to get that out of Calvin back then. That's, <laughs> that's for damn sure. You know what else is amazing, Judd? Concessions. We had last week, we had food day. Yes, we this did. This is our new food. Yep. The, this is this year's new food. Yep. And you were out there. Hot dogs? Mm hmm. Not the greatest hot dogs in the world. Uh, generally speaking, uh, a little coolness to them, right? <laughs> yes. Uh hot dogs, frosty malts, popcorn. Yep. Uh the the stuff you can't eat, the the uh cotton candy. Cotton candy. Yep. And it used uh, to be very big. And uh and maybe uh I think that uh that cracker jacks do. Mm-hmm. Peanut? No, peanuts, 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 that's it.
1: That's what you had. That
0: was it. That was those were your options. Yeah. And uh those are I mean and then beer.
1: Right, but you didn't have Red Cal coming to Met Stadium.
0: No, 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 no. (laughs) Here's the Murray's Burger. Here's the Murray's. No, no, no. I mean, it was, and you know, Jimmy Robertson, Calvin's brother, ran the concessions, and he, the same guys from Washington, came out with them, and and they had the Vikings. You know, that was the big. That was two big things. Got the Twins here, Hams Beer, because back then the beers, beers paid for baseball. Like the regional sports TVs Mm -hmm. pay for baseball now. Beer paid for baseball back then. Each team had a beer sponsor. And uh, they always had the TV and radio rights, but the radio rights were much more important than the TV rights. And I think the legend is that Ham's beer gave Calvin 10 times the amount of money he was getting in Washington. And that's why that's really? really you can talk about Sid and right. Char- Sid can tell you about him and Charlie Johnson <laughs> and John Cowles and uh, and uh, the the Minneapolis business community uh, getting the twins here. Ham's beer got the twins. here.
1: And so they're the ones that put it on CCO radio initially they put it, oh, yeah, and on CCO. had to deal with Herbie Carneal to come in eventually. I can
0: guarantee you in 1961 it was not an issue. Yeah. Where the we Twins didn't were going to go. We didn't need FM in 1961. Where the Twins were going to go. There was no competitive bidding. <laughs> the, uh, you know, the big neighbor was going to, I mean, the people would have been in revolt if they didn't put the Twins on the big neighbor back.
1: How did your relationship uh, with baseball or love of the sport change? Because I, I know you've told me before that you grew up listening to games on KMOX out of St. Louis as yes. a Cardinal fan. When the Twins got here, how much did that up your love of the game or to finally well, have not a Not my team? love
0: of my game, but it was probably the thrill of our life. My, one of the, you know, I mean, take away family and other things. Sure. This is one of the thrills of my life. As a, I was a 15-year-old kid then. And uh, when Calvin announced it in uh, at the end of October – now, the guys in the know, I was still in sixty, still in folding, So we'd see what—we'd know what we read in the paper. That's all. But I think even though there were rumors, what what you were also reading is there's no way, you know, that you were reading that Calvin wanted to move here, but that there was no way— Baseball would leave Washington mm. because they were afraid they would lose. Even then, they were afraid they'd lose their uh, antitrust exemption. Mm-hmm. So I don't think—maybe I'm wrong—but as as a 15 year old kid, it caught me by surprise that we were getting Major League Baseball. We knew we wanted it, and you know, I read the sports section every day. That's how I got my sports news. Either that, or else I got it on. K E L O in Sioux Falls, which had a fifteen minute newscast, and they told us how Augustana came out. Mm-hmm. But I mean, so we didn't have TV down. I mean, we didn't have Twin Cities TV down there, so we weren't whatever they were reporting. Right. But on the day, on the day it was announced, I remember it almost being like, because we all love baseball. All kids love baseball then, and it was my old man couldn't have been happier. I know that he was, a, you know, big baseball guy.
1: What was that first game like? Walk into a big league yeah. Oh yeah, it was, it, was, it
0: was the buzz. It was the—I remember. I think we came up and went to Murray's the night before because that was my father's restaurant, and that was that we were going to go to the game the next day, and that was the, all the talk in town. I mean, because the gopher football was all we had. We really cared about. I mean, the Lakers left in April of 1960, and everybody went home. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't that big a deal, and. uh you, you got to remember that I think the NBA was an eight or ten team league in 1960. So, but yeah, it was it was fantastic. It made us major, even though we knew we were getting a Viking, an NFL team mm-hmm. earlier. Uh, it was an expansion team. The the in baseball was as baseball's dominance over the NFL in 1961 was is the equivalent of the NFL's dominance over baseball today. Sure. So. You weren't major. The fact we were getting an NFL team didn't make us major league. We became major league the day Calvin made that announcement.
1: H- had you been aware of the stops and starts when they recruited, uh, what, the Giants were going to come here the at giants one time? Giants were one, Cleveland yeah, they a, talked
0: to. Cleveland was. Uh, had
1: that been news or in that yeah, day and age, was that really not the news?
0: Newspapers, but it never got, you know, it never got to the point that people were saying, we're going to get a team, we're going to get a team. It all less. It, it all started with the with the Braves, you know. All of a sudden, you know, the, this team shows up and goes to Milwaukee, and they're drawing 2 million people. Mm-hmm. Unheard of. And we were taking buses. I remember going to Fairmont and getting on a bus as a 10-year-old kid and going to at 7 in the morning and driving to Milwaukee and going to a game. And they played an afternoon game, like at one-thirty in the afternoon, and then driving back. I mean, Minnesota. really. Minnesotans were going to Milwaukee <laughs> in droves to see Major League Baseball. Interesting. Of course, you had Henry Aaron and Eddie Matthews. Well, yeah, I didn't York, but Spon I'm just saying and, the whole thing of yeah, it was, the fan base. So that started the whole, well, they can get a Major League team. Why can't we? We're as good as Milwaukee. Right. And, uh, you yeah, know, of course, Milwaukee, I'm sure if you look it up, they got they got the Braves because of beer, too. Mm-hmm. You know, I bet Miller or whoever. I, I assume Miller had their rights in the early years. I can't remember, but I remember there was a Fairmont radio station that the Braves played a whole bunch of day games back then, even in the summer to draw the regional crowd. You know, to to get sure. the, to get the Western Wisconsinites and the Minnesotans and and you know the. So they could get back home. Mm-hmm. We were, we love baseball, but we weren't going to pay <laughs> eight bucks for a hotel room. You know, right. it was bad enough to pay four bucks for a ticket. For right. God's
1: sakes, so, you weren't going to go stay.
0: Yeah, you're old man. I mean, I'd go to a baseball game in Milwaukee. Yeah, from Fairmont to Milwaukee and back, and the old man would give me a ten dollar bill, and I thought I was rich. You know, so I mean, it's a, it's a completely different animal. But that's what got us going. But I never. And I was a kid again, so I never sat around thinking we're gonna get major league baseball right you know, until Calvin made the announcement.
1: So you started to cover the twins uh for the Saint Paul paper when and how did things I was even, doing, uh, change things? Oh
0: yeah. I was <laughs> doing sidebars for the like and <laughs> I was a high school guy when I first got hired there in sixty eight. Mm-hmm. And uh yeah, about seventy or so I'd do out we we had one guy covering for both papers, would write for we had one beat guy and he'd in St. Paul, Pioneer Press and Dispatch,
1: A&P and papers.
0: Yeah, and we, would you know, we, when he was home, when that writer was home, like uh, who was our beat guy then? Arnold was not the still the beat guy. Arnold Gaetha was the original, but I can't remember who the. I guess Arnold still was the beat guy because Bill Boney's is the guy that hired me, and he was Arnold then, and they getting that job. So, it when during the summer. We'd send out another guy to do the afternoon stuff. So you'd get on the road, you'd have to write for both, but at mm-hmm. home. And I was that afternoon guy sometime. Or they'd send out a, a side a guy to write sidebars for both papers and stuff. And I did some of that in 70, but my first year on the beat was 74 as a when I became the, the beat guy for five years for mm-hmm. the St. Paul paper.
1: Give me your favorite uh, few stories from that that early time period. I mean, there had to be now the twins by '74 had obviously fallen off because what? 69 and seventy. 69 the and They were great.
0: They were great. They, and then I mean, the '69 team that Martin had that got swept by the they just had the they kind of like the Vikings going to four Super Bowls and playing four of the greatest teams that ever played. Right. You know, the Vikings, the biggest problem with the Vikings in the Super Bowl era wasn't that they choked or anything, it's who they played. Mm-hmm. They always played a team better than them. And the Twins' biggest problem, those 69 and 70 teams were fantastic, but they played the Orioles. And the Orioles wouldn't let you score any runs. <laughs> and they got swept both times, right? Yeah, they got swept in three games both times. But the Orioles were, look at my, I think they won 103 and 105 or something. I mean, the Orioles were, were just great and and the twins weren't, didn't quite have the pitching to compete with the Orioles, so they got beat both times. But those teams were fantastic. But then at seventy-one, uh, I think Tony, I think it was seventy-one when Tony hurt his knee,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and Harmon Gillibruth fouled the ball off his big toe, and couldn't move anymore either. And Bob Fowler, who was the beat writer for the St. Paul paper. And he like the rest of us, he'd stay out a little late at night. And he was out in Oakland one he was out in Oakland and he tells a story about coming He used to be the late great Bob. He was coming in one night at like four in the morning or something. I don't know what happened, but he was coming in and Harmon and Tony <laughs> yeah. were both at the front desk with their suitcases going back to Minnesota. Okay. And he it and whatever that date was the honeymoon was over. because Tony was done. You mm-hmm. know, Tony's knee was shot. That I think seventy-one's the year Tony won the batting title, but he got hurt and missed like twenty-five games. And he was hitting three eighty or something, and ended up at three thirty. He was, he was so far ahead everybody that he ended up winning the batting title, even though he had to limp the rest of the season. And then the next year he only played ten games because they tried to fix it knee. And if the DH hadn't come in, come in in seventy-three, he would have been done. But Harmon was never the same either because he kind of took away his foundation because that that toll, you know, you can talk about a toll. Well, yeah, but when it's three times bigger than it's supposed to be, right? It it kind of took him away. So that that's what happened. I mean, you had the best one-two punch in baseball, and then you didn't, and then they started going downhill.
1: So you start on the beat full time around 74, 74
0: and uh, I tell you one thing: it's it, it's it's interesting because you know I was a young smartass and. Considered myself one of the great experts of all time, even though I had no idea what I was doing on baseball. But, uh, 74, uh, boy, when the, when the, they, we'd been spoiled, you know, in the 70s, in the 60s. Right. We were good. Yeah. You know, a couple of bad years, but we were like Milwaukee. We were spoiled. We were great. You know, we had Matthews and Aaron and Spawn, And you, when you first come to a market, you should stink for about three years. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. And build it up. Yes. Well, the twins didn't stay. The twins were bad in '61, but they had those guys, and by '62 they were compete. '62, '63 they were competing, you know. And then '64 Tony came along. So when the bottom fell out, it really fell out, and of course it coincided with the Vikings becoming good. So mm-hmm. the Vikings took over the market. But '74, uh, my first year, it was gloomy. And I remember going down there and I think they went five and 21 in spring training or something. And it mattered back then because yeah. we were like The only way to get any information was to read the newspapers. We were the only people in spring training. The only reporters in spring training were newspapers, mm-hmm. right? Right. Yeah. There was no, I mean, we had three beat guys down there and Sid would show up and for four days or something, he'd tell you who the roster, I wrote something about that, but, um, uh, and then the big neighbor do weekend games, but they didn't do any reporting. You know, the right. The, they, were... they didn't do any reporting. They just, you know, they'd show up and do nine innings and let you know. But they didn't give you any information. Mm-hmm. So uh, and then the TV guys might come down and shoot a couple of interviews. But uh, the only place to follow the team, and we were hammering them that winter, man. I, I mean, that spring. They were terrible. They were terrible. I thought they were going to win 60 games. And they ended up, this tells you something, they ended up 82 and 80. Frank. Really? Willis. Frank Willis he should have been manager of the year. I mean wow. he got fifteen wins out of Joe Decker and stuff like that. Uh-huh. So you never know. You know, you don't even then you didn't know. You knew the Yankees were probably gonna, you know, you know, not well not then, but you knew Right. You know, you knew who was good, but you you you, you know, you never know. I mean Barbie Bobby Darwin had a big year, seventy four, but that but that was when the rumors were hot and heavy that they were gonna go to Seattle. And that, See, because, that was driven by a fall off in attendance or what happened. Didn't take me long to get into the game I, I was a if I go back and look at it, there's a lot of cliches and stuff in in my writing, but, but getting out and and traveling really for the first time, I got exposed to a lot of great newspapers and writing. I I started to change a little bit. I remember uh they lost a doubleheader to Oakland. June or July and no people had been coming to the game. That they drew 600,000. 610, something like that. And I wrote a thing that is kind of a it was a two-act play called Death of a Franchise it was the lead, you know, and that was the headline. Twins star in Death of Franchise and they went nuts. The Twins went nuts. Jimmy uh, the, the 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 Jimmy Robertson tried to hurt me the worst he can. He he, he <laughs> He, they started closing the bar a half hour after games in the Met Stadium in, in and Mets the stadium, downstairs the twins room. Yeah, and uh, so the twins room was famous for staying open till two in the morning. And and uh, and uh, but anyway, then they kind of rallied and and played. And then the and then uh, the uh, American League wouldn't let them move. Did, they, active, did wanted, they try and move, or were they Calvin just was, flirting? It was, you see, they were trying. Seattle was suing them because they had the team for one year, right? The 69. Sure. And then they moved to Milwaukee. Yep. And the, Seattle was suing them for that, and they wanted to settle a lawsuit. They wanted to get somebody out there. And by 74, the Twins were in such bad shape. Calvin was raising his hands, and he was willing to go. But I can't exactly remember did that that... Became, you know, the Tampa rumor was later. That was the Harvey McKay buyout a decade later. But I can't remember what short-circuited. But there were, I know from the winter meetings, uh, there were rumors that the Twins were being eyeing Seattle. So that didn't help the tenants either. So. Yeah. But 74, and then if Frankie Quillesey was, the next year, I think, 75, he had a three-person coaching staff. Bob Rogers yeah. was the pitching coach and the bullpen. And then he had Vern Morgan and Ralph Rowe, who were both 65-year-old guys who couldn't do anything. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't travel a pitcher on the road for BP. Frank Willesey and Bob Rogers and then Jerry Terrell, they would, they would recruit, some, recruit some players who'd throw BP. They've Frank Willisy and Bob Rogers between them threw a million pitches that year. They needed t- Calvin, Tommy John. Calvin was so P.O.'d about everything and no crowds now. He had three three major league coaches and two of them couldn't throw B P. And it was it was it was and then I think 65, 75, five seventy five, I'd have to look it up, but there's also one of those years where Steve Bride broke his hand. Mm-hmm. And Calvin kept him on the active list. Said he could didn't want to pay another guy to come up and play the major leagues. So he kept him on the on the active list and said he could be used as a pinch runner.
1: When did things change with that's Calvin? That's
0: what Quillis he had to deal with.
1: Is, is that I mean, when things changed with Calvin? I mean, Calvin, obviously, in 61, yeah, he had to be a hero. in
0: the 60s, he was. Yeah. I think there's one year in there he had the highest payroll. Okay. he was paying Harmon, you know, 125000 for God's sakes. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, he had some high priced players. Tony was starting to make some money and Cott was making some money and I think one year but but it was just I think they went back to how they always operated in Washington they just operated in bare bones cause, and survived and uh, that's that's what he was doing I mean they didn't he didn't have five million in the bank to draw on he was right. and then of course free agency came along and that killed them uh 76 was uh, that's when they let but but Mock came in in 76. You know, Frank had no clout with the... Well, Frank's Frank's only problem as a manager was he had no clout with Callum. Mm-hmm. Mock came in, but only with the prerequisite that they wouldn't be as cheap as they had been and that they would let him make roster decisions and stuff. And that's why... But unfortunately, that was also when free agency arrived. So, uh, but but they put a better product on the field at least in '76 and seven When you know '77, they were more. You you remember that? That right? team could hit. Oh God, yeah, crew, hit three eighty eight. Heisel and Bostock, and uh, I was into corny nicknames. I called them the Rod and Gun Club. Uh, you know, because they could really hit. Mm-hmm. Now. Luckily, not as many games were on TV, and the pace was a little better because if that team played in today's game, their average time would be four hours and ten minutes. They couldn't get anybody out, and the other team couldn't get them out. Look at their scores. they they play the Mighty Whiteys. It'd be 15 to 12 because <laughs> the Whiteys had no pitching, and they had Richie Zisk, and that was the one year that— Southside they, Hitman or whatever. Southside it, no. Hitman. Yeah. And uh, the Twins had all these guys, and every game— It'd be fifteen to twelve, and that's when Mock. Every time he had a chance to win a game, he'd put poor Tommy Johnson from St. Paul in, and he by August, Tommy was taking Novocaine shots in his in his shoulder and was dead. He he ruined. Uh, I love Mock. He was a great. He taught me more baseball than anybody. But he was he abused relief pitchers, mm-hmm. even when everybody abused him. You know, he just you know he ruined Tommy Johnson. Tommy never got qualified for the pension. I don't think. He had a great. Great kid over in St. Paul, but he, he ruined him, and he tried to ruin Campbell, but Campbell got out after seventy six and got a big contract.
1: If you go back now, though, as you said, a baseball reference, look at what Bill Campbell threw in. Like, I think
0: 70- it was one hundred sixty seven innings. It's off the charts. As the closer, yeah, but you got to also know this, folks. We didn't refer to them as closers back then. Closers came late seventies, maybe it was stopper. You were a okay. stopper, so you would and. Even going back to Al Worthington, when they go to the World Series in 65, you will see that he would pitch three innings to win a game. If you had a chance to win a game, if you were ahead four to three after six, Mm -hmm. you didn't bring in Efron Herrera, followed by uh, Wade Davis, followed by Greg Holland, Mm -hmm. you brought in Al Worthington, and he'd try to get you nine outs. But then the next day, if you were in that same situation, Johnny Klipstein would try to get you out, you know. What get I'm you saying? a nine outs as yeah, opposed yeah, to... I'll yeah, I'll get you five outs or something. If you if you blew out Al Worthington, your stopper, mm-hmm. on Wednesday, trying to win a game, then it had to be like your other three guys would try to get the nine outs. And then on on Thursday... Sure. And Johnny Klipstein would be the last one, but you might, you wouldn't let him get nine. He might get five. Mm-hmm. And then on Friday... If you were ahead after six, here came Al Worthington again for three innings. So It was a completely different, completely different animal. I don't know. Somebody knows, not me. I can't do it off the top of my head. Who the first one inning closer went when that started? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure. Was it Eck in the early eighties, late seventies, some something well, in the late seventies? It changed completely. Eck would have
1: been late eighties.
0: Actually, when pitching changed was. Uh, with uh, the Mets of uh sixty seven, eight, nine, when when uh, the pitching coach, who was, I believe, Rube Walker, convinced them to go to the five-man rotation to protect Kuzman and Seaver and Nolan Ryan and uh, John Matlack and I can't remember who else, but all those young arms, they had, they had like all these 24. They had like the Mets not. Yeah. And they he convinced them to go to the five man rotation, and that by the early seventies everybody was doing it, and that's when it started. To, that's when it started to change, although it certainly hadn't changed in Minnesota because as far as protecting pitchers was still not a not a thing until you know? so maybe the mid eighties. I don't know. Your
1: uh, your favorite Twins character is who you have covered.
0: Well, Puck's number one. Just as a you know, just as a as a. What I always loved about the puck, I mean, it wasn't because he's a great interview, because he was a great interview, but he never said anything. it was just babbling nonsense. Mm-hmm. But, but it was fun. Mm-hmm. But what makes him the greatest teammate I've ever seen is you could be back then. We had access to the locker room, clubhouse, whenever we got there. You know, if you if you got there two in the afternoon, you went in. You know, if you needed to get a story right. or something. Now it's hour, three hours before a game yeah, it's for an hour or something. Much more set. And then you don't get in after BP, whatever it is. But you might be in there at 2, 2.30 in the afternoon, and you people, I don't think, Judd, realize how early players get to the ballpark for a night game. You know, they start wandering in at twelve thirty, one o'clock, and managers and coaches are there by then. But you might be down there at 2.30 sitting at somebody's locker talking to them. And it might be quiet. Didn't have cell phones, but people would just kind of be chatting two by two. Mm -hmm. And Pucker would walk in and it would be chaos. Instantly. (laughs) People giving him crap. Him giving him crap. It was chaos. Uh, And it was really evident It once they got to Fort Myers, where you had a big clubhouse in spring training, because in Orlando the clubhouse was such a uh, uh, maze. Then, mm-hmm. you know, if somebody walked in, you didn't see him necessarily, but in Fort Myers, he'd walk in at seven thirty in the morning and it could go from absolute silence to guys with 88 on their back would be giving him a hard time. Not, not too many veterans would take crap from a guy with 88, right? But he, he invited it and, and that's what made him a great teammate. And, uh, So he was my favorite. Randy Bush is a guy was just one of the great guys that ever lived, and uh, Laudner, a lot lot of those guys from that team, the 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 unlikely guys, and uh, you know there's there's been a number of them, but I, I guess the puck would be number one. But going well, my all time favorite number one athlete that I've ever covered is Oliva, but I was only for a couple of years. But Oliva's one of the great human beings that ever lived. Just because he he's a good guy, or it's he... always been fun and interesting. I, th- I find him amazingly interesting. That you know, he's this all this stuff about you know Leo Cardenas hasn't gone back to see his family. Well, why not? Mm-hmm. Tony's been back twenty-five times. Get on a plane, go through the paperwork, and go back and see your family. You know, you've been able to do it. Tony's done it twenty times. But I've just found him fascinating. Plus, he's the best player. To me, he's the best player in Twins history. But short, unfortunately, his his greatness is only eight years, 64 right. or 71. But he could hit it out of the park, and he could run, and he could play right field, and he could hit 330, 320. You know, you got to remember, some of those numbers you see from him are the dead ball era. That's right. 67, 68, 69, when, 70 when... League average was two thirty five.
1: Yeah, something. what did Yaz win the batting title in the six? Three hundred one. Yeah,
0: three hundred one. One year. Yeah. So I mean, Tony's. You look at the. You can't. All numbers are not the same. Right. Steroid era numbers and Tony Oliva's numbers. Those aren't the same.
1: It, when the eighty seven and ninety one teams won, especially eighty seven. What was your feeling, given the fact that you'd grown up watching these guys, and by eighty seven you'd been covering them forever? But just the fact that this. I mean, as you know, as you well know, we we don't win many championships in this town. What was the feeling when they finally won the World Series?
0: Well, it was I guess it was fun, but you know, by then, as you know, you're so interspersed in the deadlines and the journalism and the yeah. and the uh, you know I don't sit there watching game seven and this sounds silly, but saying, gee, I hope the twins win. You're saying, gee, I hope this damn thing gets over so I can write something. This is still print, you know. This yes. is still 87-91. It's still print. Yes. Night games. Night games. And 91 was probably the most fun I've ever had covering anything because it was great. But it was also probably the hardest. because The two biggest games in Twins history are games six and seven. Mm-hmm. And they ended at what? Five minutes to 10, 12? Yeah, and probably. You and you didn't know who's going to win. Let's face it, folks. I got to give you a little secret. Uh, we all like great games if they're played in the afternoon. <laughs> we can watch them. But if we're watching a baseball game mm-hmm. and it's a big game that you're going to write a game story column or gamer story, you want it to be eleven to two in the fifth inning, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, it's then nice to, you start, writing. That, you it's nice to start writing. You can have start writing early. That, I learned that with football. There's nothing worse in sports. Than writing something, not and having it done, and know that you're 10 minutes to deadline and you still don't know who's going to win the game. And, you know, my unfavored player in the history of baseball is Hang'em High Kim from Arizona. Yeah. Yankee Stadium. Yep. Two nights in a row. Yep. Everything's written. Boom. <laughs> Boom! Everybody thinks everybody else thinks Kirk Gibson's home run's the greatest event in the history of baseball. Mm-hmm. I was standing on my tiptoes down on the lowest level to watch the last at bat, so I could get to the clubhouse and get a couple of quotes. And meanwhile, my computer's up in the third deck. Oh no! And with everything written, <laughs> and uh, Gibson hits a home run, I got to haul my fat rear end all the way back up there. Never got to, to rewrite, you know rewrite. and So so it changes your perspective. I think the only thing, it was such an opportunity to write wonderful stuff, and I do remember 87, we're all sitting, I'm, I'm in St. Paul then, and we, you know, we broke out the troops. We had four or five people in Detroit, and we're up there hacking away the Twins. By the way, that's the best week of baseball the Twins ever played in their entire lives, the week against the Tigers. In the LCS, any, LCS, any, okay. team, any Twins team in 55 really? years, wow. that was a great team. And the Twins played them off their feet. Mm-hmm. The Twins, everybody played great. Agni, fantastic. Gaetti fantastic. Brunanski, I mean, everybody played great. It would have been a sweep if Reardon hadn't given up the home run to Pat Sheridan. I mean, they played great. And, but we're up there hacking away, and we start hearing hey they're, they're gonna they, they expect ten thousand people at the airport they're gonna they're gonna they're trying to figure out what to do and then you hear well they're now they're expecting fifteen thousand so they're gonna put' them, put it down in the dome, and we're hacking away- mm-hmm. And all of a sudden it's they're saying you're hearing downtown is absolutely jammed they're gonna have. 30,000 people there. And I remember saying, boys, I think we're in the wrong place. <laughs> yeah. You know, sitting there in the yeah. press box. Because, you know, we didn't... We we're writing about the game. And the story is 50,000 people greeting these guys when they come... Of, of all the things I've missed in Minnesota sports, not being there when they walked into the Dome yeah. in 87 after beating the Tigers was probably the number one thing I've ever missed because... When you talk to the players, they don't talk about winning the World Series and your Gaetti throwing the ball across the diamond to Herbeck. They talk about walking in the dome and and not believing the reaction, what they see, yeah. not believing what they saw. Fifty thousand people screaming like lunatics, and uh, yeah. you know, so that's that was the fun part, I guess. Uh, the, the bad part was by '91 when the. The editors had taken over coverage of newspapers. Mm -hmm. drove me nuts. You know, everybody who had three bobbleheads in the front yard, we had to write a feature story on and all that crap. So, you know, I I still like the games.
1: You once uh, said, I remember to uh, Buster only I believe came to the Star Tribune one day, and Buster for a while had gone. He was still at the Times. Had gone to covering the Giants, mm-hmm. and your comment to him was, "You know, the stories are better the smaller the ball is. Yeah. The smaller
0: the ball, the better the rating." Yeah, we, what, well, it's based on baseball and golf. Sure, because but why, But what's well? They're paid at a first of all in golf. You have two main characters: the guy hitting the ball and the golf, and the golf course. You know, the there's the golf course is. You know, you can go down to uh, I guess and write all the romantic horse pleep you want to. It's you know, but I mean, it's and it's it, the golf course is can be described and uh, and baseball. It's the pace, you know. It's the, it's the, you know. It's it's the. You can describe the guy. You know, getting ready to throw a pitch, and you know, I mean, it's the pace of the thing that makes baseball great, and the and the one on one, the constant one on one struggle. You know, you can watch a hockey game and not know how the golf, how the uh, how the run, how the puck got in the net, right? Uh, it, but in baseball, you know that the guy hit a ball that went through somebody that Lonnie Smith stopped at second base or mm-hmm. something like that, you know, got deep. I mean, great little – you don't get great little moments like that. And the other thing you always say is you can go to the ballpark every day and see something you've never seen before, which which I love. What's the, but I but I also have an affinity for baseball that goes back to the 50s.
1: What's the damnedest thing you've ever seen that you had?
0: Oh, I'd say uh, my two favorite events were – When Butch Weiniger got the moth in his ear in Baltimore as the catcher, (laughs) and he went over the dugout, and they spent 11 minutes trying to drown the moth and Mm -hmm. get it out of his ear, Mm -hmm. and Earl Weaver went insane trying to get him to start the game up again, and then later in the game, Earl went insane again and got thrown out of the game. This is probably the great and Bob Brown was a great PR man for the Orioles. Fantastic guy. And and he was giving us updates on the condition of the moth and the press box. The moth is still alive. <laughs> Temps are still being made to drown the moth. <laughs> that was number one, and of course number two is the greatest ever. The the swift disco danny Ford is on third, and the slow footed Jose Morales is on second. And uh The Twins are rallying in the bottom of the eighth to uh, try to go ahead. I think it was against the Brewers. I'm not sure. And uh, Disco Danny gets about 20 feet from home plate and starts backing up, waving Jose home with great, great encouragement to wave Jose home. And Jose is safe in a cloud of dust. And at at which point everybody realized Disco Danny has not touched home plate. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> meaning, meaning that, meaning that uh, he was out. The rally was dead, and uh, Gene Mock, Joe Brinkman was the umpire. I think, I think it was Joe Brinkman, was the umpire. And Mock comes out of the dugout, and you can see the steam coming off his head, and he walks by, and Ford is walking by him, and and Mock, Mock is going out to check with Brinkman to see if what he thinks happened actually did happen. <laughs> yeah, and as as Ford's walking by him. Box says, "Leave," <laughs> and we get back. We get back to, uh, there after the game. This was bottom of the eighth, so we play another inning. We get back the game, and Disco Danny's gone. They took him out of the game, but but Danny failed. Who I love, I love Disco Danny, but he failed to score from third before Jose Morales stood from second. You're not going to see that again. And was Disco Dan your? Did,
1: did you give him the disco?
0: I didn't get. No, I didn't. Because you've I got. You've the, given. Uh, every day, Eddie. That's me.
1: Carl Willis, And right? Carl
0: Will, That's the big train. That's okay. me with the help of Kevin Dappany, giving me the train whistle, causing me to get to the okay, the uh, the train. But but uh, those are but uh, Disco Danny. I I can't take credit for that. I don't know where it started. It just became so clear that this was a disco guy. That I think it's just. I it could have been a fan. Mm-hmm. You know, it could have been a letter of the editor. I don't know. I I, I can't take credit for Disco Danny, but. Disco Danny is. He is Just, dis- I mean, for people of that dis- generation, yeah. Who are Twins fans, you just say disco, you know, and they all know who he was.
1: You had some great characters there with what Norwood Bombo and Yeah. yeah my Ford. favorite
0: of that era was probably Lyman Bostock, Great guy. Fantastic guy. Funnier now. Talk like crazy. Hell of a poison. used player, to call too, right? me Poison. That was my nickname for me. Hey Poison, take it easy. And when he was the last time I saw him before he got ch- murdered and Gary, Indiana, yeah. was, he was walking out of the, the Angels had been in uh, Met Stadium, and and Willie Norwood and Hoskin Powell and Bumble, and, and he was buddies with Willie Norwood and Hoskin Powell, a couple of African-American sure. guys like him. And he said, and he was walking out, and I'm walking down a car, and he said, Hey, Poison, take it easy on my guys. They tell me you're killing them. You know, Willie and Hoskin. I said, Well... <laughs> They're struggling, <laughs> Lyman, or something like that. He said, "I see you," and uh, he got killed two
1: days later. Last thing, uh, Carew. Uh, I remember there was a piece on you, Patrick, years ago in Minneapolis, St. Paul. This is twenty years ago or more than mm-hmm. that now, in which you. I think you said Carew was your favorite twin at that time. Had had been your well, favorite twin.
0: Well, as a as a player, I'm you know. I think what I probably said is covering him in '77 was okay, probably, but just, just as far as he, his. Uh, yeah, I got along with him fine, but he was a moody guy. Mm-hmm. I always said that uh, Rod was. Uh, I got along great with Rod, but it was hard work. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, some some guys are hard work, and Rod was hard work because he he admits it. He was a very moody guy. He's a much, you know, even before the heart attack, sure. he was a much mellower guy later in life. I think his daughter's death changed him quite a bit. But he was he was a moody guy. He would uh, he would uh, there be some days he didn't want to be around him. He did not. Seemed to enjoy his greatness as much as he could have mm-hmm. until later in
1: life. Best ability with a bat of, of any twin era well, I mean, Yeah, he didn't hit out of the even. park. He didn't hit out of the park. Right, but, but I'm saying, as far fast, as just you know, a natural hitter, you
0: know, seven bat. Tell you one thing: walking in a house and seeing seven of those things on a little little showcase yeah. on the wall is very impressive. That's that may be one of the great trophies in sports. the, the sure the bat for winning a batting title. And and I remember he, before he left, I went out to see him right before he was leaving there, and he had seven of them sitting in the entry. That was impressive uh, to enter. Seven's not too bad. No. No, All right, sir. We'll Uh, do it again soon. All righty. Thank you, Judd.
1: Stay tuned for 60-second AP News Headlines.